Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we watched since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, let's get moving. All right. Let's not dilly-dally. Let's not waste any time. People are very busy. Our listeners are movers and shakers. Yeah. They got stuff to do. What would you say the ratio of mover to shaker is? Um, See, I think that is kind of up to the individual. Okay. You know? Or maybe it's like a like a square rectangle thing. Like maybe all shakers are movers, but right. not all movers are shakers. That's true. That's you know true. what I mean? Yeah. That that could be, you could move in other ways. If you're shaking, you're moving, right? Yes, that's true. But if you're moving, you're not necessarily, not necessarily shaking. shaking. You could be a, you a, could be walking. a glider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 You could be a bouncer. That's a, that's a job. Uh, well, it's, it can be, uh, yeah. you know, let's get started. Like I said, very important listeners. They do not have time to listen to our bullshit. They are here specifically to hear what we talked, what we saw, and to hear our thoughts on it. Yeah. So they know if they whether or not they should go out and seek these things out. Yeah. So they can't waste any more of their time. So we what's have- in the news today? <laughs> uh, what is in the news today? What uh, isn't? That's what I say. Yeah, it's a big day in the news. Uh, well, for the UK, it is. Oh, yes, that's true. Um, I was talking with our writer, Daryl, about that. Yeah. So. Uh, I don't think we have any results yet, do we? Uh, not that I'm aware okay. of. Uh, we're in the, we're sealed away in the BP podcasting studio, yeah, yeah. Um, which I just snapped. I yeah. posted a snap of our wall. Yeah. Getting used to this Snapchat thing, although I, I do have a millennial to tutor me. Uh, nice, really. A, a local Los Angeles listener. Uh, he and I are, we were supposed to get together this weekend, but, um, my wife and I decided to, uh, on, on, on short notice to make a trip up to wine country this weekend because <laughs> that's who I've become. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy it, but I also wonder if 12 years ago, me heard, Oh, you and your, you and the wife are going to take a trip up to wine country for the, <laughs> like, mm, <laughs> yes, wine country. <laughs> yeah. I would have made fun of myself, but yeah. now it's like, I'm super duper excited about going up to wine country. Well, now I see it as something different. Now I see it as like, Oh, I'm sorry, listener. I appreciate all the help. And it'd be nice to connect with you like on a, on a human relational level, but I need to get some drinks in me. <laughs> oh, so. Trust me, whenever I do meet up with this millennial, it's going to be somewhere with, where there's drinks. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, we're gonna be, I'm going to learn how to drink and snap. I think I've been doing okay on Snapchat, but I still sure. want... I like to get to know our listeners. Also, what are the... That's tw- not true at all. You hate getting to know our listeners. Uh, that's... I really respect our listeners. Okay. It's not, it's not them, it's me. Oh, okay. I you see. know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah. have nothing against them. Yeah. I don't really like talking to people that I don't have to talk to. That's true, yeah. Yeah. That is true. Um, I, uh, I think I might have accidentally, I came to realize, I guess this is more of a story for uh, the actual episode, but I have a story about me probably insulting my professor uh, during a one-on-one conversation, uh, oh, that's first great, day of class. Yeah, we will, we will talk about that in so, the next episode. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm eager to meet a uh, 23-year-old because as, um, I think my wife kind of likes to point out um, or make fun of me for, I I'm 33 years old Mm -hmm. and I know that, but I kind of don't realize it. Right. Like normally when you hear the term arrested development, you think of someone who's like stuck in their like prepubescence or pubescent age, you know, like an extended adolescence year, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I think I have an arrested development at the age of like 25 or 26. Yeah. Like that's, 
that's essentially how old I think I am. And so when I see to the point where like, if I see if there's an actor who's my age, I think of them as being older than I am. And I think of actors who are 25 and 26 as being my age. Oh, see, I still see anybody on screen as older than me, unless they are notably young looking. Um, right. Yeah. So just because it just feels like, well, I mean, they're on, Look at those. Those are full on adults. <laughs> yeah, they've done something with yeah. their lives. Oh, don't even get me started on like going to a baseball game and then seeing because those the, everybody on on the field is like those are like men. And right. me, and even if I'm there was uh, Jen and I went to a Dodgers game recently and there was a kid that was like 22, 23. Yeah. And he looked like a real man. And I was like, wow, that's somebody to really admire. Wait a second. He's yeah, he's more than 10 years younger than me. Uh, I went. Um, earlier this year, um, I went to a Los Angeles Kings Edmonton Oilers hockey game and I was really excited to see the Oilers play because I really wanted to see rookie phenom Connor McDavid play. And I'm like, I really can't wait to see this. This dude's like 19. It's it's like when I think about it like that, it's almost like weird. (laughs) Like it's kind of like unsettling. It almost feels like you're in Friday night lights at that point. Yeah, exactly. Let's just see how this young man does for our side. (laughs) What can I get out of him? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about movies. Indeed. Uh, I watched a movie, um, that I, I am, I am so far behind in reviewing Blu-rays, not in watching them. I've watched a ton of Blu-rays and I have notes and I have outlines of reviews. I'm just like, Work's been busy, and there was the LA Film Fest, and then I'm reviewing theatrical releases, so I have a bunch of reviews to write. So I have a Blu-ray that I watched uh, of a documentary, I guess you'd call it, um, directed by Les Blank, called A Poem is a Naked Person. And it is, uh, again, a documentary of sorts about Leon Russell, the um, uh, singer, songwriter, producer uh, of sort of the outlaw country uh, uh, era. So this is... uh, you know, like Willie Nelson's in the movie and George Jones and a bunch of other people. Um, but Les Blank is not your traditional, um, documentarian. This is sort of a free form, very loose sort of impression of Leon Russell at this time and the people that he hangs out with. Mm. Like, I mean, Leon Russell isn't even in it for the first like 10 minutes. It's just like, there's like these, this weird old couple who lives like he built a, sound studio where people come to re- record on like a river in, um, and now I'm forgetting what state it's in. Uh, is it Oklahoma? They have rivers in Oklahoma. I don't think of Oklahoma as being river heavy. Nor do I. Yeah. Um, maybe Tennessee. I don't know. It's not important, but, uh, the first like five minutes is just an interview with this older couple about, they sort of talk about Leon Russell, but then they just talk about their history and it's just like, that's kind of what this whole movie kind of feels like. It's just yeah. uh, an, an overall feel for this time and place. Uh, you know, the, the world as Leon Russell was experiencing it at that time. Um, and this movie is notable. I'm not sure if you've heard of it because it's, it's a Criterion <laughs> release. So I'm not sure if you've heard of it. But it was made in 1974, but it only got a release last year. Oh, wow. Um, and apparently um, that was... Uh, uh, apparently Leon Russell had something to do with that. He was I think for a long time, not entirely comfortable with it for whatever reason. Mm. Um, but he apparently is now because he's, um, not only is he, uh, endorsed this being put out, but when they showed it at, I think I want to say Cine family last year, Leon Russell was there in person. And I was really, but I think it was during comic con. Cause I was really bummed that I couldn't 
go. Um, because, uh, I like that whole era of outlaw country and I like Leon Russell. And I had also just seen, I don't know if you remember going back a year now, uh, movie journal a year ago when I had seen a concert film, Fourth of July weekend called Willie Nelson's Fourth of July celebration. Yes, yes. Uh, and Leon Russell was in that, and he's just plastered the entire sure. the entire time. So much so that like my wife and I now have the term like if someone is or if you are so drunk that you're just sort of like sitting and staring, like not like acting a fool drunk or falling yeah. asleep, but just like sitting and staring like thousand yards there drunk. That's Leon Russell drunk. That's <laughs> uh, that, that's that's kind of what we say now. So. um uh, anyway, that's a poem is a naked person. It's, it's, uh, it's really good. Um, I would recommend it to, to anyone as long as don't get the impression you're going to go in learning a lot about Leon Russell. Right. It's more of a sort of, um, loose, I don't know, atmospheric exercise. I was going to say, is it more about tone than, uh, yeah. And yeah. I mean, and it's, but it's not like that makes it sound dry. It's like, it's really fun. The movie's a lot of fun because okay. it's a lot of people, like, you know, people being goofy, goofing off, drinking, playing music. There's a whole lot of music in it. And that's yeah. awesome. Cause I like that kind of music. Um, and so, yeah, it's mostly, a uh, a fun time. The, the biggest conflict comes when there's a, an artist named Eric Anderson that Leon Russell is supposed to be recording at like producing mm-hmm. an album for, while they're making the movie and Leon Russell is more interested in being interviewed for the movie than doing what he's supposed to be doing in the production. And then like he and Eric Anderson get into like a discussion, but a very heated discussion about, um, what's more important. And it becomes about like perspective and priority. Like what, like what's more important to one person might be be more important to the other person. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting part. Uh, anyway, I don't want to go on forever about it, but it's, it's a, it's got a great name. A poem is a naked person and it's available on criterion. There is a movie that I've been championing for 10 years called searching for the wrong eyed Jesus. Have you seen it? No, I just know it because, um, you told me about it. Yeah. But that's, um, it's Jim, Jim Jim White, White, right? Yeah. Jim White. Yes. Yes. Uh, but featuring a lot of interesting uh, sort of alt country artists and stuff like that, including Johnny Dowd. I think that's how I found out about it. Okay. And so you, that's what I'm trying to, because I, I think I, when we lived in college, I told you about Johnny Dowd, but yes. then did you turn around and tell me about Jim White? Yeah, is that, I think so. Yeah. Because I like Jim White. I just haven't seen the movie. Yeah. It's, and that is uh, such an interesting documentary. And it's about, there's a lot of musical, uh, mu- uh, musical, um, performances in it but it's also just about the south in general but also uh-huh. the south that people don't really hear about where it's not you know racist clan south um it's not dixie it's not anything like mm-hmm. that it's just you know regular i don't know just regular people who are neither poor nor rich it's the people that you just don't hear stories about but i don't know it's a it's a very very fascinating documentary and it 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 reminds me of that is that it's more about a tone to the point that it almost feels like it's not a documentary. Mm-hmm. Like it can't be that it's something else. Yeah. Um, but anyway, okay. All right. What's next for me? Uh, the and remember our listeners time is very important. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate because this is, <laughs> this one's going to be pretty meandering <laughs> meandering like a snake. Okay. What so is here's it? what it is. Uh, I was looking on Netflix, seeing what was new. Uh-huh. There's a documentary called the, uh, the resurrection of Jake, the snake. Oh, now I don't know if you watched wrestling growing up. Uh, I watched a little bit of it and it would have been at that era. I, okay. I know who he is. You know who Jake, sure. the snake yeah. Roberts is. So when I saw that, I was like, who, you know, who my favorite was who's that 
Do you want to guess who my favorite uh, wrestler was? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Knowing my taste and my aesthetic. Well, I feel like I don't want to say The Undertaker. Well, you'd be right. Was that The Undertaker? The Undertaker was my favorite. Damn right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to th- I don't remember who mine was. I did like Jake the Snake quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also enjoyed, you know, uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Oh, right. He yeah. was pretty good. Um, oh, I liked Rowdy Roddy Piper quite a bit. Okay. He was pretty awesome. Now, what about, we've talked before on the podcast about the Bushwhackers. I was oh, yeah. a big fan of the Bushwhackers because they were goofballs. I, I enjoyed them, yes. Yeah. They were, uh, and I liked Demolition. I liked the tag team guys. There was uh, the Legion of Doom and yeah. uh, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it was all coming back to me. Yeah. We'll and then get, I, we'll, I will forget it again immediately. We'll get more into wrestling in a moment. Um, I won't. I think I have been tapped out. Okay. So, tapped um, dry. Tapped out. So the resurrection of Jake the Snake is a film that was shot in 2014. It's a documentary about Diamond Dallas Page, who is a wrestler who came about after I stopped. But I okay, I know the name. I lived in Southern Missouri, so I know who Diamond Diamond Dallas Page is. Okay. Um, and so he so was been like the, the Mick Foley era. I think so. Okay. Yes. Like, like mid to late nineties. Yeah. Um, Cause I only know Mick Foley from the movie beyond the mat. I never actually yeah. watched wrestling when he was right. Big. But beyond the mat's a cool movie. I never saw it. It sounded interesting. Um, and one of the things about wrestling that is fascinating is that everybody knows everybody and everyone is a mentor to someone at some point. And Jake, mm-hmm. the snake was diamond Dallas pages mentor and sort of oh, trained okay. with him. And so Jake, the snake, as he got older, he got heavily into drinking and various types of drugs and hurt him and got hurt as tends to happen. Um, gained a lot of weight, got up to like 300 pounds. And so diamond Dallas page decides I'm going to, try to help this man. And so he brings Jake to his house where he and and several other people, including the camera crew all work on getting Jake more in shape, holding him accountable to not doing these drugs, not drinking and that sort of thing. Uh, he loses 40 pounds almost immediately. Hmm. And what's fascinating is that yes, the, the film is only vaguely about wrestling. I mean, it's not even, it's, it's barely about that. It's just that these guys are wrestlers and they made a living with their bodies and it took a toll. And that is what led to a lot right. of these issues. Um, but it is a great film about drug addiction and about alcoholism because, you know, you, you over the course of the film, you do see Jake really emerge as a person. You see what he used to be and then you see who he is now and who he really is now that he's, uh, you know, He's not intoxicated. He's more physically able to do things. Um, but he still has relapses. He'll still get get drunk one night. He mm-hmm. slips away from the camera crew. He gets drunk. There's a moment where there's this, I don't remember the name of the pill, but it's a thing that you take, and if you drink alcohol, you get violently ill. Okay. And so there's actually a moment where he is already drunk and he's trying to prove to them that he's not drunk. So he goes to, he says, look, I'll take one of these pills. He takes it, but he actually like palms it and makes it look like he took it, but didn't like, it's really, he's a real showman. Yeah. Well, and it's just, there's, there's a certain degree of manipulation to, uh-huh. uh, drug addicts and alcoholics and that sort of thing. And so there's those moments as well. And so he'll be doing really great. And then he'll have these moments and you just see the exasperation on the faces of the people around him. But then, 
the conscious choice they make to not be judgmental of him and to say, I'm not, I'm frustrated. I'm not mad at you. I'm not giving up on you. And you see him, uh, you know, come back to it. And the next day he's always like deeply ashamed. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they also halfway through, they bring in another wrestler that they all know and that you might've heard of who his name is Scott something or other, but, uh, he was, he was known as razor Ramon. Oh, I don't really know him. Uh, he was a, he was a heel and he was, he was also in bad, bad shape. He, he, he also gained a lot of weight. He had a lot of you know drug issues and all that. It was getting to the point of wanting to kill himself. He comes in, starts working. It's just, it's so interesting to see like the re- rehabilitation of these guys, but also, you know, they need, they both need various types of surgery and they, they can't afford it. So they actually put up like a Kickstarter for wrestling fans to contribute and they get the money within days. Oh, wow. you know, it's like, you know, eight, $10,000 surgeries. Um, and they get it within a day or two. And it, to see Jake look at that and realize, you know, I basically, I thought I was forgotten. Mm-hmm. And it turns out I am very much not. And just to see him like well up over that is really something. So, so it really is a very interesting documentary. Not merely it's, it is not, there's such potential for this documentary to be really star fuckery. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it isn't. It re- it's, it is a, I'd say a fairly unblinking look at addiction and alcoholism and the long journey. Um, what is the, director i ever forget i looked up the director i ever forget his name this is the only thing he's made yeah what is his relationship to diamond dallas and jake the snake i don't know i think he was just brought in uh as i, I don't know as like the the guy who's going to document all this but then he becomes sort of part of the accountability team just by default mm-hmm. um so it's uh like everybody in that house is on duty um, so what this then led me to was down a very long rabbit hole of various wrestling related things. <laughs> so while I was working, I threw on Royal Rumble 1990, 91 and 92. Uh-huh. Um, simultaneously. Yeah. And it was, yeah. Oh boy. It was <laughs> exhilarating, David. Um, and, and it was just interesting to watch those and see, you know, Jake the Snake in his heyday and see the various other wrestlers like uh, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then, so on the, on the final note, I will say that it would appear that to be a wrestler is to court death uh-huh. because I took the liberty of looking up a lot of the wrestlers that we grew up with. Mm-hmm. Many of them are now dead. Wow. I mean, Jake the Snake is miraculously around. Yeah. Hulk Hogan is around. Ted DiBiase. Not many others. Randy Savage is gone. Roddy Piper is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ultimate Warrior is gone. I guess Undertaker is around. But, and, and so many other people, like Mr. Perfect and Big Boss Man and Junkyard Dog and Big John Studd and all these people, gone by like 45 Wow. Just for various. Now, some of it is because of the things that they were injecting into their body and just the, the diseases that that made them susceptible to. Mm. But other times it's just sometimes it's drug use. Sometimes it's just their, their bodies just aging prematurely and it brings on all this other stuff. It's horrifying 
how, how many of these people are gone. Um, or there's significant brain damage, right? Like Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Um, don't remember him. I, I, I have a general memory of him, not a lot of specifics. I don't really remember like what his thing was. Um, but I do know that, uh, recently, um, he was, he was judged to be sort of on the hook for the death of a girlfriend in like the early eighties for maybe manslaughter or something like that. Uh, but he was also ruled to be unfit to stand trial because of significant brain damage as a function of his wrestling since then. So it is a very sad thing to look at. Uh, and you come to realize just how, just how horrible, uh, this, this world is. And, and it does make you realize the idea of like when people say wrestling is fake, it's like, yes, it's not, it's, it's not as scripted. It's scripted, but it's not fake. Yeah. They're actually getting hit in the head with chairs and stuff. Yeah. And now they know how to choreograph it in such a way so that it's not maximum impact. It's not like if I hit you with a chair right now out of the blue, right? It's not to that extent, but it's still like watching these Royal rumble things is very interesting because yes, it is. It is decided who's going to be there for a long time, but they still need to do it and they still need to do it convincingly. Like I watched 1990 and million dollar man, Ted DiBiase is the first one in the ring and eventually, and 30 people come in one at a time and you have to get thrown over the top rope and whoever is the last man standing is in good shape. And then you draw, you, you know, draw a number at random. And obviously if you're like one of the last five, you stand a pretty good chance. Mm-hmm. So Ted DiBiase is number one and he's in there and he's in there for 45 minutes. 45 minutes Mm -hmm. and he had, and of course there's an acting quality to this where you need, you can't just take a break while everybody else is wrestling. You need to make it look like you're there. And so by the end, I mean, of course he's just drenched in sweat by the time he finally gets thrown out. But I mean, that's 45 minutes. And then the next week, uh, the next uh, year there's a guy in there for 53 minutes. It's insane. And how long does a Royal Rumble go on? In the area of uh, an hour, hour and ten. Okay. So it's just, it, it gave me a great deal of respect for what they do, but also made me very sad about the physical ramifications of what they do. So that was a long explanation. I apologize. That's okay. Uh, I watched a 1971 uh, horror movie called Murders in the Rue Morgue, based on the Edgar Allan Poe short story. Um, very loosely based. Sure. Um, it is about a series of murders that happen among a theatrical company do, who are performing a play based on murder in the room or murder oh, in the room org. But even the play doesn't seem like it, that it, it's it, like, it, basically it has an ape in it. Yeah. You know, that's like the main thing. Uh, the play does, uh, the movie itself doesn't have an ape in it. It has actors in ape suits. Right. Um, but I mean, I don't mean they're not, actors i'm not describing this very well no i got the characters it. Okay. are actors yes and there's an ape suit yes so there are no apes real or fake right in the movie okay. except there is a fake ape on stage but it's supposed to be fake because yes. it's a character playing an ape in an ape suit yeah. 
uh, multiple characters at different points because the first guy gets killed. Now, in the play, are they then doing a play of no, Murder in the, the Room War that is actually that's a, very... That's a good point. <laughs> very close to the material. To clarify, in the play within the movie, the ape is supposed to be an ape. Okay. Okay? All right. It's an actor in our movie. Yes. But in the play that the people are coming to see at the Rue Morgue Theater, that's what they call it, um, in turn of the century Paris or whatever, yeah. uh, t- turn of the 20th century. It's 2016 now. If yeah. I say turn of the century, I need to clarify which century I'm talking about. I naturally assume that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, but it doesn't mean, like, turn of the century now means 16 years ago. Boo. It's okay. Yeah, I'll say turn, you know what, let's all agree to say turn of the millennium. If, uh, oh, that's good. That's good. That yeah. differentiates. Um, anyway, so, okay, we've got it locked away now. Who are the real apes and who are the actors playing apes? Okay. Uh, anyway, this is, this is stupid. I'm about um, 35% yeah. sure. <laughs> What's important is that I actually really liked this, really liked this movie. Um, Jason Robards stars, um, which is a weird choice for like an early seventies, like grisly horror movie. Um, but, uh, he's great. He plays the head of the theater, co- theatrical company okay. who, um, but basically, uh, what had happened is years before, uh, many years before 15, 20 years, uh, or no, I think they say 12 years, actually 12 years before, um, a member, a member of his company, or whatever, there was a scene where one character was supposed to throw acid in the face of the others, mm-hmm. the other character. Um, and someone replaced the stage acid with real acid. And this actor, um, had his face burned off, went insane, um, killed his lover, um, who Jason Robert's character was also in love with and who was the woman who threw the acid on him mm-hmm. and then killed himself. But now it's 12 years later, Jason Robert is now married to the daughter of the woman who was murdered. Gross. Cause she's grown up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and suddenly people start getting people in the theatrical company or who used to be in the theatrical company start getting killed again. And each one of them is having their face burned with acid. Mm-hmm. So they're like, what's going on? This was all in the past. The guy died. The woman died. Who's doing these killings? Uh, and so it's as much a, it's only a horror movie in the sense that it's grisly. It has people getting their heads cut off and getting acid, like getting their faces burned. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a gross movie in that. So it's, it's, it's horror in that sense, but it's mostly like a murder mystery um, that I think does a really good job of uh, teasing out information and having some sort of um, red herrings or or, 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 or twists. Um, and I don't want to give away um, the, the last act, which I liked quite a bit, uh, but it's directed by uh, Gordon Hessler, who is known for a lot of these kind of movies of that era, um, like the Oblong Box, Oblong Box mm-hmm. and... Uh, Scream and Scream Again and Cry of the Banshee. Uh, these are, I think I saw Cry of the Banshee. Uh, I've never seen it. I just know that uh, I, I know the name. Um, and I know um, I know the Oblong Box is a, okay. something that a movie that people talk about. But I've never seen it. Uh, but yeah, it's Murders in the Room Morgue, and I quite liked it. I reviewed a movie for the site that I still have on Blu-ray because I actually liked it quite a bit, even though it's far from perfect, called The Flesh and Blood Show. Okay. And it reminds me a lot of that. It, about a theater company uh-huh. and about somebody murder murdering people uh, in this theater company, but you never quite know. It's sort of a whodunit, but also you never quite know who's dead and who isn't because everything's so theatrical. Yeah. Oh. Um, and because these people are so theatrical, you also want them all to die um, because they are off-putting. So <laughs> anyway. Where is that one from? Uh, I don't remember. Mid-70s. Okay. 
Um, okay. So next for me, I rewatched George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. I watched it with Jen. It's my first time watching it since the theater. And, uh, I still really like it. Maybe even love it. I don't remember. It's not that I don't remember. It's just, I can't quite decide watching it a second time. It is a much more conventional film. Uh, certainly narratively than the first time you watch it the first time, especially seeing in the theater. Um, everything was just so crazy. Uh, just the way it was made is so crazy that you kind of, it feel, it feels almost experimental. You watch another, you watch it a second time, you watch it on a smaller screen. And aside from some editing choices and, and certain camera moves and stuff like that, uh, it's still, and, and it seems a bit more run of the mill. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. Uh, it's just the, the story is fairly normal, which I think freed George Miller up to do hmm. strange things elsewhere. It's one, it's, it's one of the reasons why I like procedurals is because they can be very stand. The formula is very standard, which can actually allow you to toy with character and, uh, the way the story is told. Um, so, but in watching it, I really got a, a strong sense of the world that he created and the, the idea of there's three different towns. There's, you know, bullet town, gasoline town and Waterton, uh, because those are basically the three things that are most important mm-hmm. in this world. And each guy, whoever controls, each town is run by basically one guy and they just deal with each other. And it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a film that I don't think actually has as much depth as a lot of people were giving it credit for, Hmm. because I think a lot of people got so wrapped up in the style, which admittedly is amazing that I think they mistook that for some substance. And while there is some feminist stuff going on, which is nice, um, I don't think even that is as complex as people gave it credit for. But that's not a strike against it. There's no rule that the film has to be incredibly deep. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just tremendous fun. And I watched it with Jen, who I thought might not like it. And she wound up liking it a lot. And she was, she had, you know, big reactions to it, which were adorable and just really, um, liked it all the way through and was totally invested. And, uh, it's a, it's a movie that I'm happy. I, I, I feel like I'm being really negative about it. It's more just rethinking certain aspects, but also appreciating it on a deeper level in other ways. Um, so specific- it really seemed to happen with like when a big, when a big like studio, like summer release or whatever, yeah ends up being really good it ends up getting overhyped i think and the yeah. second time you watch it you're like like i remember seeing the dark knight the second time yeah. in the theater and being like oh yeah this is still really good yeah I, but this is not as good as i thought it was when i walked out of the theater because i am not used to walking out of a you know a may june summer release yeah um being that excited And I feel like now I admittedly reacted like this when I first saw it, but I feel like if a lot of people were to revisit gravity, they would probably, I feel like they'd feel that way, which is, this is a tremendous achievement. There's some storytelling issues and some character issues. It is not, Yeah, it's a thin, it's thin, it's thin, you know, thin soup, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. So, all right. Um, 
the back half of my um, early seventies horror double double feature was not uh, not quite as fruitful for me as Murders in the Room Org. Um, it's called The Dunwich Horror, and now this is, that is with the one, Dean Stockwell. Yeah, I was really excited about the movie because of its cast. Listen, Sandra D. Okay, Dean Stockwell, Ed Begley. All right, Sam Jaffe G- wait, or Jaff Junior or Senior? S- a regular. Okay, plain original <laughs> <Yeah>. recipe. Um, <laughs> Sam Jaff or yeah. Jaffe? Yeah. Uh, and then also um, in a, a sort of then unknown Talia Shire in a couple of scenes. Oh, neat. So I was really excited to watch it. It's so boring. Oh. And it's based on an H.P. Lovecraft uh, story, which usually, uh, in my experience, movies based on or inspired by H.P. Lovecraft tend to be cool. I talked, yeah. I think, last week about liking The Curse, right. which is based on The Color from Space. I couldn't remember the name of the short story uh, last time. Um, but... Um, uh, and of course there's reanimator, which is a fucking amazing movie. Um, Dunwich horror is just, it's just a lot of talking and like Dean Stockwell being a creep, but not a big enough creep to make, to carry the movie. Yeah. He's just sort of like very somnambulantly like creeping on Sandra D. Like he, he gets her to come out to his estate and then basically keeps finding ways to not let her leave. Um, because as it turns out, he wants to sacrifice her to the old ones sure. to bring the old ones back. Um, and, uh, Ed Begley is like, you've got a great character actor, but like Ed Begley and he's just an exposition machine in the movie. Ugh. Uh, he's supposed to be the, to talk about, uh, in terms of we used last week, he's supposed to be the Ahab. He's supposed to be the one who's trying to track down yeah. and rescue, uh, Sandra D from Dean Stockwell. But it's really just like, here's what I've learned since the last scene. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty much all he's there to do. Uh, it's, it's too bad. That's unfortunate. Yeah. It's a bummer. It's a snooze. I was going to tell not so much a story, but one of those computer games that I played when I was younger uh-huh. was the fourth entry in the quest for glory series and by far the best. Oh, okay. um, and it's one that, uh, and that's actually an interesting series for a number of reasons because each, each game represents different things. Like each one has a different theme, uh, as far as the type of mythology it's going to engage in. And, uh, it's going, and each one is like, this one is North. This one is East. This one is West. This one is South. Uh, and then there's, you know, uh, different elements. So each, I don't know, they, they all play on different aspects, but the fourth one has to do with, uh, uh, like ru- a lot of Russian mythology, but, w- but it also draws heavily on HP Lovecraft oh. to the point that you have to prevent, uh, these characters from summoning a the dark one mm-hmm. who, uh, there's this bit, it's called the dark one's cave and you go in and it's really gross. And it turns out the cave is in fact, the, is in fact a dormant. And, uh, oh. so you're walking around inside it. See, here's what I like about, movies based on H.P. Lovecraft because I've never actually read any H.P. Lovecraft okay. because as established I don't really read very much. Yeah. I used to and then I moved on to movies. Sure. That's what I do now apparently. Yeah. Um, here's what I like. It's a subtle thing but I feel like in most supernatural or horror type movies or stories mm-hmm. you've got normalcy being sort of invaded on yeah. by abnormalcy or something yeah and what happens in hp lovecraft stories is that over the course of the story you realize that normalcy was the temporary state and it gets 
peeled away and you realize, oh, things have always been weird and dark and scary. Yeah. And this has been going on for millennia. Uh, and whatever we think is normal is actually just yeah. a temporary resting place in between uh, eras of uh, tentacled gods and stuff. Yeah. And it's just a matter of the the evil or the supernatural simply being awakened. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. And it's always been there. Um, UK votes to leave European Union. Really? Yeah. I kind of, I, I would have, uh, I thought it was going the other way as did I, but, um, wow. Your thoughts. Um, uh, my thoughts are white populist anger wins. And now I'm scared for our, <laughs> for our, uh, November election. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And don't get me wrong. I think I would probably, if I, I would probably vote to leave, uh, cause they've always been kind of out, like they didn't adopt the Euro. Like they've always been kind of doing their own thing. It's been very interesting. I've actually watched more debates than I probably should have. Okay. And I see in there, there are pluses and minuses on both sides. Um, and so it would not be an easy vote for me. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a. What an odd, what an odd development. I really would have said they would vote to stay by a wide margin. See, I knew the polling was close, but it seemed like people who thought they knew what they were talking about. Apparently they're all idiots. Sure. Um, yeah. It gave me the impression that it was leaning towards remain, but, uh, boy, oh boy, well, they Brexited. <laughs> they did. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, how about that? That's that's a surprise. Well, let's not uh, get too far ahead of ourselves because, you know, Donald Trump was not the spokesperson for Brexit, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, and when it comes right down yeah. to it, there was no third option. Whereas people right. like me okay. are not voting for either of the two options in this country. Right. Uh, come November. Donald, Donald Trump was not part of the balanced Brexit. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we're done right uh, we can't who cares what we say after that okay all right moving on yeah to some actual uh, my last two will actually be uh re- current releases now i have three more movies how'd that happen wait what know. did you just talk about i just talked about a game oh based that's on, right so is, yeah it's your yeah. turn okay so that's i right. saw Keon- you know, you're sure it wasn't this isn't one of the like the game the game isn't one of the movies you watched. Oh shit. I played. <laughs> yeah. The, my next one is quest for glory. Shadows of darkness. Um, I saw Keanu. Oh, okay. Now, and you had recently seen the neon demon. Yes. Which has the real Keanu. In yes. It. Was there any confusion on your part? Did you had, did it, was there an adjustment period? There is a surprising amount of cliff Martinez score in Keanu. <laughs> um, yeah, so I really enjoyed it. I've been kind of getting into Key and Peele lately, and the thing that got me, there's there's a lot to enjoy in the film, a lot to laugh at, and we are now coming up against my own cultural experiences and, and ignorance, uh, because between this film and a show like Blackish uh-huh. with Anthony Anderson, uh, it would appear that there that there's something going on with like black entertainers where they feel the need to sort of look inward and see where they fit in larger black culture. But at the same time with a movie like Keanu, uh, they seem to be exploring what black culture is. Um, and should it be that, but also is, is the way black culture is represented 
culturally or in entertainment, is that actually what it is? Um, and that's the thing is, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know at all. But that so, is it reminds me of in the movie Dope, which we yes. talked about um, early on when he talks about how he and his friends are into white shit. Yeah. One, and there's a list on screen of what counts, counts as white shit. Yeah. And one of them is Donald Glover, which is very, <laughs> like, it's funny, but yes. it's also like, what does that mean? Yeah. And just as and, an outsider, I'm like, tell me more. Yeah. And like, and people have said the same thing about like a, a Wayne Brady. <laughs> um, and so it's just very, because you, uh, you saw it in the trailer. You have, Key and Peele accusing each other of sounding very white, saying you sound like John Ritter all the time. And one guy listens to uh, George, my uh, uh, George, wait, George, George, my, yeah. Holy George, shit. George Michael, George Michael. Sorry. I was thinking in terms of rest development, it's like, no, George Michael's a guy from rest development. Oh wait, no, that's a real person as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, listening to him and really getting into it and that sort of thing. And then at one moment, at one point defending George Michael to these black like gangbanger guys who immediately say, well, is he black? Like that for them is their big, I don't know, their big reservation about liking it. And, and so you have these two guys who by their own admission talk like John Ritter and they live in the suburbs and that sort of thing. Um, and you see them trying to sound like what they think will make them fit in with not merely black culture, but in this case, a dangerous criminal black culture. And it's just, it feels a little bit broad to me. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. And I'm curious to know, um, if, if I were black and I saw this movie, how would I respond? Um, cause there are plenty, I don't know. Are there any movies you can think of that examine white culture? Well, I think white culture is kind of, you know, there's, there's too many white people to have one white right. culture, you know, cause we have, uh, I don't know if they count as ethnicities. We have different identities within yeah. white culture. Like my experience as a Midwestern German, Irish Catholic is different than your experience as a West coast, uh, Protestant yeah. or West coast born. I guess you also grew up in the Indeed. Midwest, but yeah, it's, it might be more regional or class based mm-hmm. for, for white people. Like, you know, it's, uh, there's yuppies and then there's rednecks, you know, very different yeah. types of culture. But I, but I do feel like from an outsider point of view, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Bring this okay. Up. Because there is some, do you remember there used to be a blog called like stuff white people like yes. or something? And that was a very like specific type of white person, yeah. which I, as a white person who doesn't like most of that stuff. Yeah. Um, like I listen to a lot of like heavy rock and heavy metal and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which is at least in the U S very white or mostly, you know, cause it's, it's thought of as, you know, rock music is thought of as being yeah. white. But when people talk about like white people shit, like on that blog stuff, white people like they're not talking about heavy metal, right? They're talking about, and my term for that is NPR people. I was going to say it's stuff that white people who read this blog, who are inclined to read this blog and laugh at it self-consciously will like. Yeah. So I think of, I think, so I do think there is a, uh, a very broad, um, at least over the last 10 years, American cultural jokey idea of whiteness. Yeah. Um, that I think of as being NPR-ness. Sure. And it is, and it's, 
and I feel, you know, it feels so appropriate that, uh, that in talking about this film that does seem to want to explore black culture that you and I immediately start looking at white culture. Um, well, you did. <laughs> but I've clearly but thought y- about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I have, yeah, I have a thing about like, but I think it's the opposite where you're talking about key and peel, like, um, trying to put this on, yeah. you know, to, to fit in, uh, in certain situations. Whereas I feel like, and this is my own self-consciousness. I so don't want to be NPR white. Sure. That sometimes I'm self-conscious. Like, I think we talked about, um, it took me a long time to come around on Sufjan Stevens. Yeah. Um, is that how you say it? Suf- 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 Sufjan is Sufjan Stevens. Um, and I think cause that Carrie and Lowell, that record from that album from last year. Mm-hmm. So great. I mean, it was two years ago. I can't remember. It's so great. But I think for a long time, a part of me was like, I don't want to be a, Sufjan Stevens guy. Yeah. Uh, that's my own hang up. Well, and that's the thing is it's hard to know where the film comes down is well, because it, it would appear that in some ways it's wait a second. Why do we want to, why, why do we feel that the key and peel characters, why do we feel bad about being part of the culture we are in? Mm-hmm. Um, because the people in this very criminal culture are very dangerous and they probably don't want to be there, but, and yet we feel like frauds. They feel authentic. How is this happening? But at the same time, the film does feel very broad. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'd be curious to know, and I, I, uh, I was at a screening last night and our friend Aaron Newworth was there and I had just seen Keanu the night before and, you know, I asked him and I know that sounds shitty, but he's a critic. And this is a thing that in something that he and I, because we had also just seen free state of Jones, which is a sure. Yeah. Racially charged film. So we were, it, it was the conversation of the night at the time. And I feel bad asking that, but he is a critic. And so yeah. I thought, what did you think of Keanu? Because I don't know. And he goes, well, I, he goes, I, I definitely feel like those guys, uh, he goes just because of the way I, talk and the things I think about and that kind of thing. But the way he said, the way he mentioned it, it was that it was very, he thought it was very broad and that in doing so, he appreciated that they were trying to, mm. uh, explore something, but he wished they had been more specific about it, which is kind of the vibe that I got as well. And then he said that honestly, he likes it when they, that they do it a lot on their show and he likes it a lot more well, when they do it there. I, I haven't watched very much Key and Peele, but I think it's in the very first episode. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where Key is on the phone talking with his girlfriend, presumably about theater tickets. Okay. And then Peele plays another character who just, he's standing in the street corner and Peele plays another character who stands up and who walks up and stands and waiting for the light to change. And Key immediately like changes his voice and the way he's talking about yeah. tickets, you know, and then Jordan Peele is also on the phone. Also, you know, all we've heard is this like sort of deep, like gangster yeah. type voice. And then when the light changes, we follow Peele away as he crosses the street and he goes, Oh my God, I almost just got mugged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a there is a fun a fun moment where uh the two guys in in keanu are talking about because one guy's from detroit one guy's from new york and they're talking about well the guys who beat me up were probably way bigger than the guys that beat you up <laughs> so it's that's the thing is it's just i don't know so the question then becomes is the movie f- for me 
I mean, a movie can be for anybody, but it is such but a, it's so specific. So again, it treats it very broad, but the thing that it's exploring is so specific. But here's the thing. Here's a, when, when people like myself, uh, social justice warriors like myself, sure. um, talk about the importance of representation. Yeah. A lot, a, a lot of times that get frame, gets framed in, 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 in terms of young minorities, women, gays, whatever, being able to see themselves up on the screen. Yeah. That's very important. Sure. That is probably the main thing, the main argument for representation. But this is the other side of it. The more representation there is of minority female gay voices or whatever, the more people like you and me who aren't necessarily exposed to that. Yeah. Um, get to, we get to the going back to the Roger Ebert quote about machine movies are a machine that generate, generate, generates empathy. Yeah. Right. That's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the, the other plus side of, um, more representation is that we get to learn more about the world that we live in by seeing yeah. things through other people's eyes. Which, and that I'm, and that I'm very happy about, but it does, it still leads me with this question of, I'm very much on the outside looking in and trying to, and you know, it's why for the record, it's not like I saw Aaron and said, Hey, you're black. Uh, what do you think of this movie? He's a film critic. That's why I asked, uh, who has, I think you're safe. Okay. I wasn't sure how I was coming across. I think the, I mean, obviously aside from Aaron, I don't know any black people. And so like, (laughs) for all I know, Aaron now like hates you. But probably not. I think the fact that Aaron is someone you know yes. makes it okay. If you just went up to the nearest black critic <laughs> yeah. and said, hi, have you seen Keanu? Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah that would maybe be right, a little... Right. Uh, yeah, he's someone that I... That, uh, first off, I don't think it's possible for Aaron to hate anybody because he's the, like one of the friendliest guys in the world. But yeah. Um, and it was... It was uh, I don't know. It's This isn't a situation where in... Uh, what was it? Was it Seinfeld where they're talking? That's right. It's it's Seinfeld where uh, Elaine thinks she's dating a black guy, and then everyone and George is like, "Guys, I, I don't know if we should be talking about this." <laughs> I feel like as I talk about the themes of Keanu, I almost feel like I shouldn't be talking about it because it's not my place to talk about it, right. even from a critical uh, with a critical eye. Yeah. Um. So it's but it's it's interesting. Like it. It, just in what we've been talking about, it's clearly doing more than most comedies. It might be doing it in a very broad way, but it's and it's also very funny. Um, to move on, I'll put a buffer okay. between this conversation and the next one by saying, speaking of Seinfeld, sure. I had a very embarrassing moment in the elevator at work this morning. Okay, You're, like me, a weird nerd and a comedy fan, sure. right? Do you ever have a situation where you are not talking to anyone there are people around, you're just minding your own business, and then you think of something out of the blue, funny from a movie or TV show, and you start laughing, and then you have to like cover it up by pretending you have a cough yes. or something? Oh, yeah. Okay. That happened to me this morning, and then like, first I parked my car, got in the elevator, going, going up from the parking garage to work, and something about being in the elevator. I'm in that elevator multiple times every day, yeah. but for some reason, suddenly, something about being in that elevator that time reminded me of when Elaine said she got kicked out of her building because she buzzed in a group of Jehovah's Witnesses and a jewel thief. <laughs> yeah. And I just started laughing and then I had to be like, <clears throat> but everyone knew that I was just a weirdo, like <laughs> chuckling to myself over in the corner of the elevator. So that was an embarrassing way to start the day. I, that is a thing that happens to me relatively frequently, but 
I will bring, I'll mention something that is comparable, which is I will be at my gym uh-huh. and I will be listening to something oh, on my sure. phone yeah. and I'll be on the old exercise bike and something will hit. I'll be listening to a comedy podcast or something like that. Uh, something will hit me and I will burst out laughing uh-huh. and I have earbuds in anybody watching probably assumes that I heard something funny Yeah. at the same time the people at my gym are remarkably intense. And so for me <laughs> to be like, bah, <laughs> it just, it looks, it probably looks really weird. Yeah. You know, and one, and one of the things is that like, I already feel out of place because, and this is, I sorry to talk about, I don't know, I guess race is on my mind, but I am the only white person at my gym. So, and I, it doesn't, that doesn't bother me, but I do sometimes wonder if anybody has taken note of that, but the fact that yeah. I'm the white guy just laughing and laughing, probably because yeah. I'm so rich, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> it must be that. Uh, yeah. Um, I, was, I was about to say, because sometimes this word gets used without people thinking about what it means. I was about to say, well, you live in a very diverse neighborhood. You actually don't live in a very no. diverse neighborhood. No, it's, oh, just, the, it's the opposite. Yeah. It's just the diversity white... moved in when I did, <laughs> right, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, uh, yeah. All right. Anyway. Okay. Moving on. All right. Uh, moving on to a new movie and this one, you're going to want to listen up Tyler because you are going to like this movie quite a bit. Don't tell me what I feel. I also like this movie quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's out this weekend. Um, it's directed by Thomas Bidigain. I'm probably not Frenching that up enough. Okay. It's probably Thomas Bidigain or something like that. Um, it's the directorial debut of him. He is the writer of a prophet and rust and bone, which are, um, both, uh, uh, what was that? Odiard, Jacques Odiard, the, okay. the director of those. Anyway, this is his first um, movie as a director. It's called Le Cowboys. Okay. L E S Cowboys. Uh, maybe it's less cowboys. Yeah. Um, I say we need more. Could have used more cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Um, it uh, it takes place uh, in the recent past. It starts in 1994 and covers about 10 years uh, of time. Um, and it is in many ways well before eventually becoming its own thing, but especially the first half or so is a modern day retelling of the searchers. All right. Where, um, you've got this family who live in, uh, France who are into much like the, uh, people in the broken circle, circle breakdown. Did you ever see that movie? Um, that sounds familiar. that's a Belgian movie, uh, okay. but still French speaking. Um, but in that movie, they're like really into bluegrass. Okay. Like, and they like dress like, they're hicks from the American South. It's like a weird subculture. Apparently that's must be very big in the French speaking world because in this movie, once again, you've got a, a family who this is what they do with the fun time they, with their, with their free time. They go to country music, like sort of fairs and play and play songs and square dance and, oh, wow. um, you know, uh, eat American food. It's like a fun subculture that they're in. Um, and then, so it's a, mother, father, husband, wife, whatever. And then a daughter who's, uh, in her late teenage, late teens. And then a son who's about 12 or 13. And, uh, a few minutes into the movie, they're at one of these fairs and they realize the daughter's gone. Uh, and they're looking all over and, um, it turns <coughs> out she was not abducted by Comanche. I know that's what you're thinking yeah. because you've seen the searchers, but, um, it turns out she had secretly had a boyfriend named Ahmed who, um, is Muslim yeah. and, um, Writings they found in her room um, suggest that she may have been converting to a very um, 
extreme uh, version of, yeah. of Islam. And Ahmed is also gone the same day as Kelly disappears from this fair. And we realize, oh, they ran off together and went yeah. to possibly join a, you know, whatever, some other group or whatever they, wherever they are. So the, the father takes off looking. Um, and there's a long sequence of him, like, um, uh, going, you know, halfway across the country and looking and following leads. And then like, it comes up dry and then there's just, it's just the next scene. And it takes you a moment to realize like, Oh, six years have passed in between. Okay. And now the son who was 13 is now 19 and almost a man and is accompanying his father on these searches. And they've gone to Turkey and, and Holland and, and, and Belgium and all this stuff. And it, uh, it's again, like the searchers, it's a years and years long search for this missing girl. Uh, then things change. Um, and then things change again. There's a, one thing I like about the movie. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what I've described so far is I would say less than half of the movie. Um, one thing that I like is that multiple times throughout the movie, it completely pulls the rock out on you, uh, out from under you and changes what it's about. But uh, in a way that always works. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it, it becomes, uh, eventually it becomes, um, even more like a Western because, uh, uh, there's a long section in rural Pakistan where characters are literally riding horses to the countryside under like a, you know, camping out and talking about the big sky and stuff. And, uh, John C. Riley is in this part. He plays oh, a, okay. uh, uh, an, an American who's a, uh, we don't really find out what he does. He's not with the military. He seems to be maybe in some way there on a private basis, exploiting the war and, hmm. uh, the, the, the culture for his own personal gain. We don't really find out much about John C. Riley. It's a, it's not a big part, uh, but it is, I didn't know he was in it. And it's just like, interesting. I was like, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, cause you see him before he opens his mouth. And I'm yeah. like, I think that's John C. Riley. Uh, anyway. Um, uh, I, I don't know what more to, to say about it. Um, but the fact that it, it seems to me that it's not just like, Thomas Bidigain didn't just think it would be fun to update the searchers. Like, I think he's intentionally drawing parallels between the America, you know, the, the Western culture in the late 20th or the 21st century in general. And, um, the American, uh, culture, um, uh, settler culture and their mm-hmm. relationship to the native Americans being similar to our relationship to, um, I guess, radical Muslims. Um, and in both cases, what I find is interesting is that you don't really, there's not really any major Muslim characters in the movie. Everything's no. from the white people's point of view. Yeah. Um, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not sympathetic to them, but it's also examining maybe like walk the line of examining why these particular white people might not be very sympathetic to, to the Muslim characters they uh, encounter uh, either. It's, it gets into some pretty thorny, I think uh, parallels. Um, And I think it handles them pretty respectfully. Of course I'd have to, at the next screening, I'm going to go find the the closest Muslim and ask him uh, what he he or she thought of it. Um, But uh, I don't know. I think, I think I really, I really liked it. Um, It's uh, really well, well shot. The, um, 
and the music's great. It's, uh, the score is by someone who goes by just the name Raphael. I, I okay. don't know uh, what his deal is, but it's great. Uh, and like I said, I think you would really like it. It sounds very interesting. Um, I do like when when films or plays or books or whatever um, draw on not merely history, but also uh, cultural history or like pop culture history Uh um, or artistic history to make a point um, about uh, a situation that we're in right now. But anyway, okay. Uh, So I watched a film from 1926 uh, called The Lodger directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, Uh, according to him, it is the, it is his first real Hitchcock film. He directed a few films before that. Did you, you used to have a VHS box set of early Hitchcock? Yes. Was that in there? Doubtful. Oh, okay. Because this is a, is a silent film, and I think all of those were sound. Yeah, I think they were, because um, I watched all of those. Oh, wow. I can't wow, remember okay. if I'd seen the, the Lodger. But yeah, you're right. That would be silent. No, and I didn't watch it. So it was, uh, I watched it in my in my class, in my Alfred Hitchcock class, and it was More very... More to come on that later. Indeed. In the next episode. And it was very interesting, and I liked it quite a bit. It stars Ivor Novello, um, who, uh, if you watched, if you've seen Gosford Park, you see him as played by Jeremy Northam. Oh, okay. And, uh, that, um, they even make reference to The Lodger in Gosford Park, but... There were two versions of The Lodger. There was the silent film, which was very popular. Then, a few years later, there was a sound version, which Ivor Novello was also in, and that one was a total flop for some reason. And I'd say, if I had to guess, the difference is that Hitchcock did not direct the second one. Uh, Because this one has a lot of Hitchcock hallmarks. Um, It's often very funny. There's uh, an interesting relationship to blonde women. And... (laughs) And also it just comes at, it just comes at the story from an odd angle because it's the story of a Jack the Ripper type who is uh, killing young women in London. But, and it's about, it's sort of about the search for him, but not really. It has more to do with the panic caused by him and the paranoia caused by him. We never really see the, the, uh, the, the character is called the Avenger. Um, and we never really see him. Ivor Novello is a guy who rents a room. He's the lodger of this, uh, at this, uh, house. And it's about whether or not he is the Avenger and the family trying to figure that out. And maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He's very suspicious in some ways, but other times he seems very innocent. And it's just about, so it just, it's so interesting that it could have gone just a standard, procedural route and let's figure out who this guy is um, from the, from the investigator standpoint, but it isn't, it's from a domestic standpoint. It's from the point of view of citizens and it's just uh, I was very, it's just very interesting. There's a lot going on in that film and you can definitely see a lot of uh, a lot of what Hitchcock would go on to be. Uh, in that film. And so, and apparently they did a, what we watched was a fairly recent restoration of it. And it's definitely worth watching. So the lodger 1926 or seven, actually, now that I think about it. Okay. Uh, that sounds great. Um, 
I won't spend too long on this last one. Uh, some movie that's come out uh, this this weekend. I wrote, I wrote a review. I wrote my, you can read my, my review of the Cowboys as well. Um, but I also reviewed Eat That Question, Frank Zappa in his own words, um, which is the kind of thing that uh, as someone okay, all right. I'm a semi-professional film critic, as we've talked about. Uh, I also I think last week you referred to our website as my website, <laughs> um, and. Sometimes I feel like, um, in fact, often I will take press screenings because like I'm, I'm free that day. I'm going to see that movie, even if it's a movie that I would never, ever see. Yeah. Now, sometimes that means it's a terrible studio movie that I'm not in, interested in. Um, but sometimes it just has, it has to do with subject matter. And um, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who is less of a Frank Zappa fan than I am. Mm. Uh, and so I got the invite and I was like, sure, I'll, I'll take that. And then like, as the day approached of seeing this Frank Zappa, movie, I was like, what did I do? Like, I no. can't stand Frank Zappa. <laughs> what am I going to like, how am I going to be fair to this movie? Yeah. Um, and I think you have to read my review. I think I, I was fair. The movie didn't turn me around on him right. really. Um, uh, not entirely. There are some things that sometimes I have to remind myself of, um, his voice in the eighties against the, um, you know, test fan against, uh, the warning labels and, yeah. and stuff is like, uh, all, you know, all my other beef, uh, or, or, or distaste, uh, aside, um, he really stood up for free speech and yeah. was incredibly, uh, eloquent and made a lot of, had a lot of powerful words about, um, the importance of free speech and the power and importance of art. Yeah. So I have to really respect him for that. And the movie did sort of remind me of that. Um, but it's also a lot of him being the kind of, uh, uh, contrarian asshole. Um, wait, who am I talking about? Am I talking about Frank Zappa or myself? Oh, watch <laughs> um, uh, that I, that I don't like. Um, but I still feel at the end of it, that, like I knew him better. Um, cause the way that he's, the way the movie is, uh, structured is that it's, it is chronological, but it also, um, in a subtle way seems to take on a topic at a time. So like at this point, he's, we're going to have a bunch of clips of him talking about politics or this is going to be about sex. This is going to be about drugs. This is going to be about family. This is going to be about free speech or whatever it is. So as they're going through his life, they're also going through his different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And I, there's a lot of, things that he stood for that I respect and agree with. There's mm-hmm. also a lot of things he stood for that I respect and don't agree with. Sure. And then there's just some stupid stuff he says just to be a little instigator. Yeah. You know, he claims that America has no um, history of its own, like, folk culture. And that's, like, that's ridiculous on so many levels. Like, there's so much, there's so many music, like, there's types of music and art forms that are, that, began in America. Yeah. Like there's forms of dance. There's everything, like everything that he lists off. He's just trying to be able, he's just being a little shit. And every time he <laughs> says something that he thinks is really, I mentioned this in an interview, he'll like say something that he thinks is really cutting and like hold the stare with the interviewer just a few seconds, just to like let it sink in. Yeah. And I just, I like, I hate that shit so much. Yeah. Um, it's, but, I believe in the past, uh, when I've, referred to that i usually talk about it like with michael moore um that he will say something and then he kind of leans back as though have i sufficiently blown your mind <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing he's doing um but i do uh 
I, I, I think the movie, whether you like Frank Zappa or not, it's a very interesting movie. I'm, I'm glad I saw it. It's also, I think it, uh, your opinion on this, because you uh-huh. are a conservative and Frank Zappa was a self-described conservative. That's how he referred to himself. Yep. Um, but you know, a lot of this movie takes place in the 1980s. It's when he was very vocal. And yeah. at one point he's on crossfire with an, uh, arguing about free speech and he refers to himself as a conservative, but he also hated Ronald Reagan and yeah. was pretty much opposed to all forms of religion, which in 2016, the profile of an American conservative yeah. is the, the opposite of those things. You uh, know what I mean? I'm not saying if that's true. I'm not saying it's true across the board, but I'm saying the, whatever the, the, the standard form, like standard issue, what we think of as an American conservative in 2016, yeah. um, is pro Reagan and probably Christian. Probably Christian, although that is actually starting to lessen a little bit. The idea of the of the conservative Christian or the whatever you want to call that mm-hmm. um, Christian coalition and the influence on uh, conservative politics that is something that is starting to move away. Hmm. Um, which is, and I, I think one of the reasons for that is that Mitt Romney was a Mormon, and so it forced people who probably religiously did not agree Mm -hmm. with Mormonism having to be okay with that and recognizing that, Oh, you know what? Uh, you can be a conservative and be a staunch atheist and it's perfectly fine. And so I think that actually is starting to go away, but there is still, um, a certain, uh, deification of Reagan. But at the same time, there's plenty of people at the time, uh, conservatives were pretty big into him because he was winning a lot. Uh, he was doing very well. He was very well liked, uh, by a lot of people. He won 49 out of 50 States, uh, uh, for reelection. And so I think people really look at, they look at him now and they feel like, wow, we, we could go for that right now, that mm-hmm. level of winning. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at the time I know that there are a lot of people who, cause he did, he spent a lot. He really increased military spending and that kind of thing. And, there are some, I would venture to say that while he was, uh, while he described himself as a conservative, I could, I could see Frank Zappa being much more libertarian, which means not being super into military intervention and probably well, not being he, in that, in that crossfire. He talks about national defense being one of the things about that government, the government is supposed to do. I think his problem with Reagan from what I got from this, mm-hmm. this movie at least was that, um, cause this was, I think at the beginning of this is like Jerry Falwell. This is at the beginning where you're talking about, about right. Christianity coming very much into power in the, in the Republican party. Yeah. And I think what Frank Zappa was opposed to was, um, R- Ronald Reagan governing from a moral standpoint. Um, oh, okay. I think he, yeah, yeah. he was against, he was against the government having a say on our, our, our general morals. Yeah. Which, yeah, now that I think about it, that is a, uh, and I, I actually think that is a notably libertarian point of view, but it is also theoretically a conservative point of view. All right. Um, that's all the movies I saw. Um, you know I have, more? I have Gary Ross's free state of Jones, right? A film that to borrow a social justice phrase uh-huh. is problematic. <laughs> Now, you know, does it, now does it, uh, does it erase anyone? That's my new favorite social justice. Oh, what is thing that? Is to that, um, that's a new one for me. Yeah. The, the idea is that like by not representing certain viewpoints, um, in film or whatever, you're essentially erasing them from future history. That's a um, dumb phrase, but that's, we can <laughs> it's move a on. Good idea. But I feel like, see, I guess we are on different uh, internets because I feel like, 
Um, cause I, I agree with that point of view, but I feel like the word erase has been used so often that it, its own meaning has been erased. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's probably too much of a, when you say erase, that is a very definitive, right? If you want to say minimize or reductive, I'm on board with that. But when you say erase, it just, it feels like, does every movie have to represent everything and every person? <laughs> Otherwise that person is fucking erased. All right. All I'm right. Just, Frank Zappa. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just saying these damn Christians. Uh, anyway, no, it's, uh, it is, I'll say it. Okay. So, you know that I am not, a, I'm not a big Edward Zwick fan when it comes to glory, mm-hmm. last samurai mm-hmm. and, uh, blood, blood diamond. diamond. Yeah. Uh, that is, and his, I do like, I never seen the last, I've never seen the last samurai, but I like glory and I weirdly liked blood diamond. Yeah. Oh, invariably they're fine movies. Invariably to me, the supporting characters are way more interesting than the lead characters. The lead characters are white the supporting characters are not white. But um, innocent, I mean, do you think that in Edward Zick terms, I haven't seen Free State of Jones, um, Gary Ross's Free State of Jones, um, in, in Edward, Edward Zwick's movies, isn't that kind of by design that the... That is the conclusion I've come to, is that... Right, the, the lead character is essentially the audience avatar, and he, it's he in all these movies, yeah. is learning from the more interesting characters the same way we're supposed to. At the same time... If you're not careful, that becomes magical black man. Um, right. But you know, or, you know, in, in glory, it's magical black platoon. Yeah. Or like, yeah. Uh, it's even more of the regiment. Um, cause yeah, when you think of glory, like the characters you think of first are not Matthew Broderick and Carrie Ellis. Right. And you're maybe thinking of Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington. And maybe that's, you know, again, by design, I think it but, is, yeah. but at the same time, uh, I will say that, you know, if, if movie to go back to that Eber quote, if movies are a, a machine for generating empathy, then you can probably have the story of, you know, the civil war from a black soldier. Right. And if you do it well, we'll be there. We'll, we'll get on board. You know, we can relate. Um, the thing about free state of Jones, there's a number of issues. Um, it's very powerful, but the power is not the film. And I haven't written my review yet, but I'm I'll be writing it after this and I believe the title is going to be unearned power mm-hmm. which is to say there's inherent power in the story it's telling it's like a it's like a holocaust film there's inherent power and if you even mildly capture it then you're like 60% of the way there yeah but this is a film that maybe only goes another 10% um because you should go with stolen valor stolen I don't like that oh, okay because that's a real phrase oh is it okay like basically if you buy if you go to a thrift store mm-hmm. and you buy a vintage army jacket yeah that has like patches on it that oh, someone okay. earned and you walk around wearing it as if you know Ugh. it's it's uncomfortable and i think that's referred to as stolen valor that's something i learned weirdly from the best show but it's actually a real <laughs> true thing um yeah i think that, i think you should name your review stolen valor that's my two cents it feels uh that idea feels gross to me um, <laughs> because then it's like, Oh, why was that jacket sold uh, or gotten rid of? Right. <laughs> now I've got a whole narrative in my head that I'm not comfortable with. Yeah. Um, so, so it's the story of this guy, Newton Knight played by Matthew McConaughey, who in the early days of the civil war, he was a deserter. 
uh, on the Confederate side. Mm-hmm. He was a deserter and he, and the deserters were frowned upon, uh, which is to say they were killed. Uh, mm-hmm. and so he didn't want to be killed. And so he runs yeah. away to this little, like an Island in the middle of a swamp, basically that is populated by a handful of runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. So, and they all live together and he doesn't, he's not big into the cause of the Confederacy uh, when it comes to slavery. And so he doesn't have a problem like living with them, but then slowly, but surely as the Confederacy starts to lose a little bit, you get a lot more deserters. And before you know it, this Island is populated with deserters and runaway slaves. And there are like hundreds of them. Hmm. And how big is this Island? Uh, large enough. Um, large enough to accommodate several hundred people. And, but then there was also this issue where the Confederate soldiers would take from local farmers, take their crops, uh, in order to feed the soldiers Mm -hmm. and leave them with nothing. So before you know it, this, uh, small army of, of, uh, anti-Confederates, but not necessarily pro-union, um, they start fighting against uh, the Confederate soldiers whose job it is to uh, steal uh, or confiscate uh, food and and supplies and stuff from these farms. So they become public enemy enemy number one. And here is where the film becomes a problem. Now, it's kind of a problem already because they do – it's an interesting story – And I think it's perfectly fine to tell it from the point of view of this guy, except that there is a character in it played by, I never, I feel terrible. I never remember how to say his name. I know who you're talking about. Uh, Let's see here. I think it's Marshala Ali. That sounds right. He was on um, the 4400. That's right. And And he's on uh, House of Cards. Oh, is he? Okay. And he was also... um, Am I missing? He was in the last couple of Hunger Games yes, movies. That's correct. Um, and I think he also had a small role on Treme. And then yeah, uh, I like him. I, he was great on the Forty Four Hundred. That's where I first discovered him. I actually thought he was only okay in Forty Four Hundred. I think he's gotten much better as oh. an actor. Um, he's uh, he's great in this movie. He plays a runaway slave named uh, Moses, and it is a self applied name. And there's a lot of power to his character and he is undoubtedly supporting. And that is to me a bummer because it feels like at the very least the film should have made these character, these characters co-leads. But at the same time, if the story you're telling is the story of Newton Knight, go right ahead. But here's where the film becomes, if you'll pardon me, yucky. (laughs) I like it. There's a monologue. Oh, boy. So I'm not going to say all the words. Okay, good. Uh, there is a monologue. Our time is very important. What was that? Our listener's time, very important. Well, it has more to do with the words that I'm not saying. Uh, oh, I see. So Matthew McConaughey is giving a lecture to, not a lecture, but he's giving like a, a rousing speech to his his people. And, you know, he's talking about how there's no difference in his eyes between any of the people he's talking to black, white, he doesn't, you know, a man is a man. Great. So far, so good. But then, then he starts mentioning and he very freely uses 
the N word to describe as not necessarily ironically, but with derision, like he doesn't like that word and he doesn't like what that word means. But at one point he does describe himself and the other white guys because they are, you know, persona non grata in the Confederacy and they are being hunted. Mm -hmm. And some of them are in fact caught and hanged, Mm -hmm. you know? And so he says, he's like, you know, we're all N words. Yeah. And part of me is like, I get what you're saying, Matthew McConaughey. Was there a shot of Mahershala Ali rolling his eyes (laughs) at that point? Uh, No, it's, (laughs) and at one point, and and at one point there is a a moment when he turns to this character, Moses, and he says, are you this? An N word. He says, no. And he says, why not? And he says, because, uh, because I'm a child of God or something like that. And so he goes, he goes, that's right. And he goes, and you can't own a child of God. It's a, that's a nice moment because it brings the two of them together. But when he says, we're all of this, I remember thinking like, like I said, I get what you're saying, but the fact is, and yes, you are in danger. If any of you are caught, you will all be hanged. I get that. But for some, this, that was the baseline. You did something officially wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Your actions caused this. The other people's existence caused this. And while you might live on that same island, there is a notable difference. And that is when the film really started to get to me. Because I think after that, when following Newton Knight, it becomes very self-satisfied. And Matthew McConaughey does really great with the role. And But I feel like there are major, major script issues. Um and I've, and this was a film that Aaron and I, cause we sat next to each other at the screening and we were talking afterwards. Um, cause beforehand I was talking about how I'm not that big of a fan of Gary Ross. And he was like, no, I think he goes, I think he's a pretty good writer at least. And afterwards he's like, yeah, that script is not, uh, not great. Um, <laughs> I'm always fascinated by Gary Ross. I don't think is, I yeah. love any of his movies. I like the first hundred games a lot more than you did. Yeah. Um, and I, I like Pleasantville. A, I have a lot of. Uh, respect, I think, for Pleasantville. I don't think the experience of watching it is, um, it's not, uh, it's less than the sum of its parts in a way, I think. Sure. But I like thinking about Pleasantville. Yeah. Um, And then Seabiscuit is uh, snooze. Well, and this feels, the film feels so safe. And I, I think of this film and I compare it to, admittedly, I haven't seen it, but the trailer for The Birth of a Nation. Oh, right. Or is it just Birth of a Nation? Which one is which? I forget. I think I think this one, the new one is The Birth okay, of a Nation. That's I what could I be thought. wrong, but I think it's The Birth. So, when I, I think you're correct. Um, when I look at those two things, you know, both about, you know, uh, revolt in the South during the, you know, the, sl- the slavery era, this one feels so safe and it feels so bland and self-congratulatory and maybe it's supposed to be a situation where hey you white people you can be a champion for these rights and that's fine and you know selma has characters white characters who come who travel to be there with martin luther king and we see that they are targeted they are killed and that is horrible Mm -hmm. but they are supporting characters this is first and foremost about Martin Luther King and the, right. the guys around him. And this just feels like kind of a wasted opportunity. And I feel like, don't get me wrong, like Newton Knight's story is interesting, 
but I feel like the overall story, it's called free state of Jones, which is the name of, uh, the, the little country that they develop for themselves because mm-hmm. the North really isn't on their side. The South isn't really on their side. So like, all right, this is our own country. We call it the free state of Jones. So it's like, all right. So since you are calling it that you can actually have it be about more than just this one guy. You can have it be about these two guys right. together. It could be almost like, and also isn't uh Gugu and Bata raw is in the movie. Yes. Uh, I like her. I don't know if it's a she's, good part, but. she's very good. Um, and it's just uh it just seems like such a waste of an opportunity and such a bland film. This might be my least favorite Ooh. Gary Ross film. And I oh. and I'm not a huge fan of his, but this is the one that feels it goes beyond in you know unmemorable to mis genuinely misguided. All right. Um let's uh burn through some TV real yeah. quick. Um I just want to mention I watched the the season 4 finale of Inside Amy Schumer and it was a bummer because they ended after only 9 episodes and they did ended with a clip show. Oh. Yeah, it seems like uh it kind of reminds me of the final season of uh Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations when okay. like one foot was already out the door on the way to his CNN show. And like ah. half of the shows, the last season of no reservations are either clip shows or things they could shoot in and around New York city. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like the laziest final season. This season is today. Sure. We're going to do breakfast in bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, this season of Sunday machine wasn't that bad, but uh, it does seem like even though it's coming back for another season, but it does seem like, uh, um, I'm a movie star now. Yeah. Uh, and maybe her, her, uh, energy was, uh, being focused elsewhere. Okay. What do you got? I have been watching, I've been watching lie to me. Uh, I don't know why, but I think I, I had, I remembered I had seen one or two episodes of it cause a friend of mine was on an episode once. So I saw that. Do we want to stop because of that? No, we keep going. All right. Sorry, everybody. Some dogs are having a fight. <laughs> yeah, in my it's neighborhood. <laughs> it happens. Um, and so, um, so I'd seen one or two episodes of it and then I, th- I think I saw that it was on Netflix and I thought this, if ever a show was made to be quote unquote watched while I was working, this is it. <laughs> and so, cause it's a procedural, it is, it was clearly greenlit because house was such a success. And this is uh, mm-hmm. Tim Roth plays uh, a character who, uh, is based. He's a real bastard, but damn it. He's good at his job. Something like that. But he's also kind of eccentric. Um, and he has a crew of lesser known actors around him and they're (laughs) part of his team. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. Uh, and he's based on a real guy, uh, who is an expert in, I think psychology, body language and micro, uh, what's called micro expressions, which is the way the body will betray what mm-hmm. you're really feeling in the slightest of ways. And so it's interesting. And Tim Roth does a good job and, and they, they do a good job of, of, uh, revealing aspects of his character a little bit at a time, not all at once. Um, as far as his history and why he got into these things and all that, uh, as far as, the <laughs> as far as the way the micro expressions manifest themselves, this is where the concept is at war with the fact that this was a major TV show because they need us to be right there with the main character. So they need us to be like, Hey, wait a second. He's lying, but we're not trained in this. Uh-huh. 
So rather than go the house route and just have him notice things that we don't see at all. And then he explains it. And then we think, you know what? That was there rather than that. Mm -hmm. Once you get into the third, fourth episode, that's when it's like, okay, they, now we notice things and we notice them because you can see them from across the fucking room. <laughs> it is ridiculous. Uh, you know, and it's stuff that seems so unnatural. You know, the idea is, you know, we all have these, these, uh, gestures. It could be a facial tick. It could be like the movement of a shoulder. We have these small things when we're lying or when we're uncomfortable or whatever that, and, and that's fine. And we'll have moments where, you know, you touch your, your touch, your chin or you touch your forehead or something like that. That's all very natural, but they actually have the actors go so far out of their way <laughs> to make it clear that something's going on here that, you know, I'm not an expert, uh, in micro expressions, but if, you know, if a character walks into the room, hopping on one leg, yeah. You're going to notice. It's almost as <laughs> they're like one step away from a character lying and then like grabbing his collar and be like, Ooh, <laughs> like they're almost there. Um, and so it's, it's ridiculous. And I have, and I like the show in spite of that. Um, but, uh, but boy, oh boy, uh, when you watch a lot of episodes in a row, that's when it's like, all right, I need to take a break because this is dumber than it should be. Uh, house is a better show than lie to me. Um, but it's nice seeing Tim Roth, uh, on a regular basis with a character that he can explore from one episode to another. And I think that's where the show is at, is at its best. Okay. Um, Last time we did one of these, I um, had I think I had started watching uh, the first season of Unreal. Okay, I've now I have now seen a number of those. Uh, like when somebody uh, when you start driving yeah. a car and you see it all over the place, I now see those billboards and posters all over the city. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a name for that phenomenon that I can't think of. Um, anyway, so I've now finished the first season and caught up on the second season, which is okay. three episodes deep right now. Um, and it's a very good show. It, I have a number of problems with, with it, uh, that I don't think people had prepared me for because people who love this show, love this show. Yeah. And I totally get it because when it's on the money, uh, it's fantastic. And it has, it still has two great lead characters. Um, but it has a number of problems in terms of, uh, and I think I might've mentioned this. I, I, I'm, I don't actually remember what I said on this, on the movie journal last week and what I said on, Hey, watch this okay. about this, but it has a problem with where not knowing where the line is, uh, in terms of, um, what we'll believe, like in, in, in terms of suspension of disbelief, I guess. Right. Uh, this is behind the scenes. Uh, so it, it's supposed to be a dark and realistic things about the awful thing show about the awful things, I guess that happened behind the scenes of, uh, uh, of a bachelor type type show and, and a, a show that, inco- that encourages its producers to be at their worst and to disregard the, uh, emotions and in some case, the well being of the contestants. And that's very interesting, but there's a line before it just becomes, um, cartoonish where it's like yeah. i don't think like i'm sure i'm not saying tv really reality tv producers are saints i'm saying i don't think they could get away with that like that's right. just ridiculous um 
and uh, say, I don't know, I'm not trying to get, I'm trying not to get too spoilery, but like there was this third episode of the second season had one that was um, just, uh, just, just too far. And then the other problem it has is with its villains. Okay. Cause it has two great anti-heroes that in, in a way, I mean, if you did the show right, uh, you wouldn't even really need an antagonist when you have such right. a complex anti-hero. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to realize that. In fact, it has multiple antagonists. And the problem is that they should be, uh, you know, when you've got a bad guy on a TV show, uh, who's a recurring, like a regular cast member, not yeah. like, you know, um, there should be some sense of maybe like, what's the, like, maybe like you love to hate this person. Like yeah. it, it should be enjoyable to watch, but they've got multiple bad guy characters who are just insufferable. Whenever they're on screen, it again, in, in a different way, it also tests my suspension of disbelief because it's like, how is, how are these people such creeps or such idiots or such monsters? And, uh, how are they still around? Like, how did the mech get fired? Like, how, how is this happening? Um, I think the, I think the show needs to stop looking outside its main characters for conflict. Mm. The characters are conflicted enough on their own and, uh, it, 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 it becomes overloaded with story at some point, uh, at some points. Um, and that distracts from the core of the show, which is really, really good. And, um, if they could just stick to doing what they're really, really good at. Um, this could be the prestige drama that I was told it was. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So I, in the course of about three or four days, I watched three seasons of Silicon Valley. So I am all caught up. You're all caught up for the big finale this week. Next yes. week, we'll talk about the finale. I'm so excited Yeah, that you caught up. Can I ask you if you agree with me okay. that the show, um, how do, you obviously, you, you were obviously hooked. Mm. Do you agree with me that the first season is weaker than the second and third? I don't, I, I, I it's tough because, you know, I watched it all so quickly. Right. Um, I mean, the first season is what, you know, got me. I mean, it, it, it's what hooked me. But I do think that things get more. There's something about, you know, you're working towards success. And then you get success. And there is something dynamic about success not being what you thought it was going to be. And in fact, causing you more trouble. Mm-hmm. I think there's something there's more, there's more conflict in that. And it's more, uh, antithetical to what we all assume. Mm-hmm. And so the first season is something we're much more used to seeing if not, if you know, nothing else in our own lives, but then you actually have them achieving a certain degree of success. And that actually brings not necessarily more problems, but problems that they're really not used to dealing with. Everything in the first season is something that, it, that comes pretty standard with the lives that they're living, but now they're thrust into this new thing and they have to navigate what is for them uncharted waters, which I think makes for more dynamic character think, yeah, moments. You're hitting on, I think what I, um, how I felt about the first season compared to the the other, the other two in that the first season kind of had, it's obviously a better show than entourage, but it kind of had the entourage thing where like every episode, there's a big conflict. It's like, how are we going to get out of this one? And at the end of the episode, Oh, they got out of it. Yeah. And what started in the second season, it's like, how are they going to get out of this one? They got out of it. 
but now in a different way, things are actually worse than they were yes. before. Uh, yes. And I find that um, much more compelling to watch. Yeah. You may recall that I texted you and this happened in the second season, maybe even the third. Um, it, starting in, I think starting in the second season is when I started to get really stressed out by yeah. the show. And just, and I almost yelled at my TV uh-huh. where I was like, stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> stop fucking everything up. And after a while, almost like you said, it's almost the anti entourage where I almost wanted to, it, it's like, I almost felt like you are artificially making bad decisions, <laughs> but they do, they do such a great job of writing these characters and the actors are all doing such great work that I believe that these characters would do this specifically the, the, the Richard character, Thomas mm-hmm. Middleditch, the, the lead is that he makes really bad decisions on a regular basis. He makes really good decisions, but he's out of his depth and he's more of an emotional character than one would first assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he will make emotional decisions that are not logical and make things so much worse. And I just want to like scream and say, stop being so rash about things and and it's just it's a deeply frustrating show to watch because but when it comes down to it it's people that are that are amateurs trying to navigate a world that is not Mm -hmm. um a world that is has been well established and they're trying to figure out how how things work um but that first the first season still they do they do a really good job in that first season of establishing stakes, establishing characters, yeah. and setting up arcs. Um, I found myself not always liking every character, but sympathizing with each of them and being really invested in them. You know, even characters like Ehrlich, um, who is often very unlikable and very annoying, I still found myself exhilarated almost in a Michael Scott way, like from the office that there are things he is good at. And when he is good at them, yeah. he is very good at them. Like his yeah. level of charisma and the fact that he knows if I start talking, we're in good shape. Uh-huh. Um, I like that a lot. Um, you know, compared to what I was just saying about unreal and maybe it's because this is a comedy and unreal is, is not, um, Silicon Valley does sometimes cross the line into being outlandish. Yes. Um, with Ehrlich and especially with Gavin Belson, who's one of my favorite characters in the show, yeah. but it is sometimes so it's like such a, like you can't believe this person actually behaved like this, right. but it works. And I'm wondering if it's because it's a, it's a comedy that we're, that we're, we're, uh, we're we give it a little bit more, more room. I think so. Um, but yeah, Gavin's thing with bringing the animals into the, <laughs> into the <laughs> conference, especially the first one, that dog, the, the, the bulldog. Yeah. And he just keep, and it's really cute, but he keep, keeps talking about how disgusting and ugly it is. And he and just like, like, get it out pushes of here. away and then brings it back to <laughs> insult this yeah. dog some more. And the whole time this dog just look like looking adorable. Yeah. <laughs> and just the idea that everybody in the world looks at that dog and says, I want to cuddle with it. And he just sees it as just this freak of nature that needs to be destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I enjoy that. Um, I enjoy, there's a moment that is, it's just such a, it's a very standard moment, moment for a movie, for a movie like this or a TV show like this, but it pushes one of my, one of my funny buttons, uh-huh. uh, which sounds vaguely sexual. Um, <laughs> But, uh, when 
Richard tries to buy Adderall from that kid and the kid totally scams him <laughs> and you just feel like, Oh, poor Richard. And Ehrlich is off doing his own thing, but he comes in and he sees Richard's like, Hey, have you been crying? Smash cut to like Ehrlich in his bathrobe coming up to the kid. And he's like, Hey, which one is it? And you see Richard in the background, like, like a, like a woman that has been battered uh-huh. and just points it out. And, and he just goes up to the kid and he has a wonderful line and it's just like, this is a tough thing to play, but TJ Miller pulls it off completely uh-huh. because there's no hesitation. Uh-huh. And at one point he just goes, he's like, you brought piss to a shit fight and just slaps him right across the yeah. face and then throws his bike over a head. <laughs> and it's so funny. And it's just, it's a very standard thing. I've, you know, in it's in bad Santa. There's just something about an adult. And again, in real life, this is horrifying, yeah. but there's something about an adult who just will beat the shit out of a kid, <laughs> uh, who has been abusive in, in other ways. Um, so I think that's funny. I think so many things, I'm going to say everything about big head is funny. Okay. Pretty much everything. Even that moment when it's, it, I think it's episode one or two where he's going to be kicked out of the company essentially. Uh-huh. And you just have everybody speaking poorly of him, but he keeps, he's, he's there uh-huh. perpetually. Like he's there and they're like, Oh, we didn't mean that. And he has no reaction at all. And he's like, all right, I'll go. And he leaves. And then they just launch into it again. And he's like, I forgot my keys. And he's just, <laughs> that's funny. And his big gulp is funny. And yeah. you pointed out that there's a moment when he doesn't have a big gulp. He has a different drink that it looks exactly like his big gulp, but shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. That's hysterical. Um, um, and just his, his, it's like, he's not smart enough to know how to lie. So he's just honest all the time. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. He's a, he's a good, like, he's, he's a, a good, good person. person. <laughs> <laughs> he's just really dumb. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that. I love, yeah. I love the, uh, uh, my favorite, like ending of an episode this whole season was, uh, when Ehrlich says, Aloha. And they yeah. says, that means Hello. Oh, and goodbye. It, yeah. it cuts the credits. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. People who haven't gr- seen it won't know, won't get why that's funny, but it's, but it's perfect. Funny. It's like, that um, is, that is really insightful. Uh, now my favorite character is, you know, is Jared, whose real name is Donald. Yes. Um, oh, no question. Uh, yeah. And he, uh, the line of the season from Jared for me this year is right at the beginning. It's like the second episode when Richard meets, uh, a girl at the bar mm-hmm. and Gilfoyle keeps insisting that she's a bartender. Okay. Is it, uh, you're a bartender. I work at Facebook as a bartender. <laughs> That's funny. But no, um, when Richard like points to the girl at the bar, I got her number and Jared looks and goes, she's magnificent. <laughs> Jared is also a good person. That's the other thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's- and just, and at first, because, we are trained to see Zach Woods as just a sycophantic, uh, toady who is untrustworthy, um, based on the office and, uh, oh, in the loop. Oh, right. um, yeah, yeah. but in this, he's like a true believer. Uh-huh. Um, and he might be, he is also a bit misguided at times. Um, but at the same time, just, he's so sincere and he's so on board with, with what Richard is doing and, and he's, he'll be there all the time. Uh, but it's also funny that just the, <laughs> the fact that he might have more life experience than anybody on the show, uh-huh. but it just keeps getting thrown out there and he reacts like it's the easiest thing in the world. Like, like not the easiest, but like the most 
common thing in the world. And the fact that he screams out German yeah. when he's sleeping, yeah. but nobody, but he doesn't speak German. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also love uh, the other Jared Lydon in the season when he finds out that he's uh, been named to the board of yeah. Pied Piper. <laughs> oh, Donald, you've come undone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Donald, you've come undone. Um, and then uh, their invest their their first investor, who I do not recall his name, but I know that actor. Russ. Russ, yeah. Uh, yeah, Chris Diamantopoulos. Yes, that's right. Um, and who, uh, crawled out of a horse on Hannibal. That's right. <laughs> very, I remember him. Very different role. Yeah. And I believe he is also... Um, I think he's also in Arrested Development uh, the, the, on Netflix. Okay. Um, I think he's the guy who is not great with facial recognition. Oh, that's him. Yeah, that's him. And he yeah. was on an episode of Community as well. So I've seen him in a bunch of things, and I think he's very good. And he's good in this as well, just the, the type of person that he is, um, because he's so similar in many ways to Ehrlich, uh, as far, even in their stories. Mm-hmm. But I also like that he does not even acknowledge Ehrlich at all. Um, and I like his definition of success is the way his car doors open. <laughs> um, but I do love that he just points at Jared and just goes, this guy fucks. Yeah. Like, and that's the only thing he has to say about him. Um, it is it is a really, really good show. Uh, and I and thought it was going to be... We about a, uh, our friend Stephen Tobolowsky. I was about to oh, say... Okay. Um, what I really find fascinating is that I thought this was going to be a sillier show than it is, almost to the level of parody. Uh-huh. Um, but it's it remarkably sometimes gets there. Sometimes the beginning, of yeah. The um, the funeral for um, well, um, I forget the character's name now who died because uh, the actor died in real, yes, in real life. Peter something. Um, yeah, at the beginning of season two, the funeral for him. I mean, that's straight up like sure that's the silicon valley like satire sure yeah um and they they do have some nice satire in regards to the way technology is always screwing up um and little things like the way they say uh you know everyone just says making the world a better place always Uh um i did have a i have a friend who is in uh the episode where they go to the uh the convention and he's part of the the montage and he's the guy uh, who says, he goes, we were so low mo, but now we're mo so low. Wait, hang on. I think we're low mo, so, like just getting uh-huh. confused. So that was my friend. Um, and, uh, but it was, it, uh, but that, that was just a regular friend. Our celebrity friend, Stephen Tobolowski was great. Yeah. I love the, uh, the argument when he's like, the, the the little chart that he made up is like it yeah. makes a box you can't make that shit up <laughs> and Richard's like you literally did make it up yes I did and now they teach it at business schools <laughs> and he's you know okay so I recognize that we're I'm about to be praising somebody that's been on the show but I will say I've I've been a fan of Stevens for a long time I am astounded when some when I can even if we didn't know him in life. I'm astounded when someone can seem like a completely different person without accents, without changes in costume. The way he carries himself, you know, Steven does not play authoritative characters that often. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, we've seen him, you know, in, uh, where he has a low level authority in Deadwood, but even then the character (laughs) is just more of a, just this little worm of a man. Whereas in this, he is like he's he's silly at times but he has a lot of authority and when he yells i mean it's real and there's that moment when richard goes over his head 
and uh, Steven's character gets gets the best of the situation, and he says like, and he says it with all sincerity, and I believe it, and it seems yeah. really dangerous when he says, "If you come, like if you if you're gonna, you know, shoot the king or whatever it is, you make sure he you shoot to kill or something yeah. like that." He doesn't say if you come with the king. That's that's Omar. Omar. Yeah, yeah, if you come with the you king, best you best not, not miss. miss. Uh, <laughs> and so. And those are really great moments. It's and so when so when he shows back up, yeah, and he's talking now with Gavin. My first thought is: first off, I love the payoff of that scene, and that they still wind up in separate jets. Yeah. Uh, but I I do like the idea of these two characters now yeah, joining forces. That seems and those two, Stephen Tobolowsky and yeah. uh, Matt Ross together, are surprisingly. It shouldn't be surprising. I wouldn't have thought the show would put them together, and yet they're perfect. When they recreate the getting lost in the server's uh, basement thing that we saw earlier, when they... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, just call it, John? John? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, it's... I have I really, really love the show, and I didn't expect... I thought it was going to be a fun little show. I did not expect to be as invested as I am. It's really great. All right, we got a show to get to. We got to do the real show. Indeed. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 